Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for hymn writers and songwriters who help us join our voices in community and in song together as a congregation. And I trust, Lord, that these times together are times in which we teach one another, times in which we build up one another, times in which you are glorified and uh, you are pleased with our praise and the, the unity of our hearts joined together in truth. Father, would you use your word this morning in a special way as we introduce this new sermon series for the fall, Father, I just sense that this is important for me, important for our church, and I just pray that you would use it deeply, and use it in a significant way as, you're, as you choose and apply it as only you can do through the ministry of your Holy Spirit as is needed to each individual here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. It's overwhelming. It's everywhere. It's daily. It presses in moment by moment. It's in our community. It's in the church. It's in our homes. And it's in our hearts. It's in Ohio where a nurse throws away a donor kidney in the trash and ruins it for a viable transplant. It's in Montana where a young bride, in a fit of anger, pushes her brand new husband off a cliff and kills him. It's in Oklahoma where one of the outstanding programs in college collegiate football is exposed to be rotten to the core with violation and sin. It's in West Virginia where a little girl, just two days before her 24th birthday, passes into, the, into eternity from cancer, a life cut short. It's in Shenandoah Junction almost every day as people throw their trash in my lawn. It's on TV. It's on TV as two men kiss. It's in school as the teacher denies the existence of God. It's in Charlestown as a young single mom who doesn't need another issue about her day gets a nail through her tire and it goes flat. It's in Philadelphia as an unborn baby's life is terminated. It's in Colorado as floods wreak havoc. It's in California as fires destroy homes and beautiful forests. It's at a kitchen table when a precious little baby screams and spits out their peas. It's in Syria as poison gas destroys heinously. It's in Chicago as school children are killed in a gang's crossfire. It's in my office when a wife tells me her, of her husband's affair. It's in my Bible when the first man and his wife willingly disobey, which leads to the murder of their son by his brother. And it's in the mind of God that all people are guilty. That all people everywhere of all time fall short of His glory. And that there is none righteous, no, not one. And that all deserve to die. What do all of these things have in common? What is the common thread that ties them together? 
and makes them a, cons- a consistent theme, it is that every single point that I have referenced are a result of one thing. Sin. Sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. Sin brings sickness and death. And I need to tell you this morning, if you haven't already figured it out by reading your Bible or through your own life experience, that it's worse than you think it is. We begin a new sermon series today, as I've referenced. And I believe it's an incredibly important topic. I think you're going to find it more interesting than perhaps you might imagine. You see, if we don't understand sin, believe it or not, without a proper understanding of sin, we will be unable to understand the history of the world. If we don't understand sin, we will likely misdiagnose much of our own feelings, our attitudes, our behaviors, and our habits. Apart from a proper understanding of sin, we will likely have a view of God that is distorted and untrue. We will likely, with an improper view of sin, be in danger of believing ourselves to be something that we are not, which could actually lead to life-impacting decision-making that is harmful, futile, and destructive. And it won't be until we understand sin that any of us understand our need for Christ's redemptive work at the cross on our behalf. These lists could go on and on by way of introduction. But what I want to do today in establishing this theme of our sermon series on sin, it's worse than you think it is, It will, uh, let me just tell you that it will be a topical series. That is, that we will not consistently be in any one passage, but we are going to take our Bibles and we're going to approach this subject from a number of angles. Some Sundays we will be very specific and pointed as to certain sin. We will next week particularly dig into the theology of sin and understand our Hamardiology. Do you know that word? Hamardiology. The doctrine or the theology of sin. What does the Bible say? At a groundwork level, we will define sin even more carefully next week in a couple of different ways. But what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to illustrate to you in four points why it is so important for us to study This topic. Why this is a must for our church. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1, where we will uh, look at a couple of verses here. We will be turning in our Bibles um, throughout this sermon series, some weeks more than other weeks. And so I want you to make up your mind ahead of time that you will not get irritated or impatient with your pastor as we turn in our Bibles together. What a privilege and a joy for us as a congregation to receive the preaching of the Word through the Holy Spirit as He uses His written Word in our lives. And you need to become very familiar with your Bibles so that you can readily turn in the pages of Scripture. 
Um, if you choose to use electronic Bibles, uh, that's your choice. Um, the, the one thing that I think is a weakness of that, and I don't think it's wrong to do that, um, I personally don't enjoy that, but I um, like to be able to write and take a pen and mark in my Bible. I'm not afraid to do that, and maybe you'll find that helpful. I, su- I would suggest that you, you discipline yourself to take notes. Each week I will try to have a structured outline. It is possible on a, per- on a couple of particular weeks... When I want to make sure that I'm speaking very precisely and I will give you my outline so that I have to do what's up here and and don't go a-wandering. But I would encourage you to have a little notebook or some some paper that's tucked in your Bible and it will help you, I think, in the listening process to jot down the outline points. Some of the passages of Scripture will be worthwhile in your devotional life to go back and to study, to think, and let the Spirit of God use it. So why the importance of this topic? I've referenced a couple of foundational ideas here, but let me give you four reasons that are on my heart as to why I believe this is such an important study. The first is, number one, the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of this subject. Why should we study this topic? Because it is an incredibly serious topic. Let's read in James chapter 1, a couple of verses here, and I want you to see a couple of things. We begin with verse 13, and we'll use verses 13, 14, and 15. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God, notice this, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. From these verses, we can clearly affirm a couple of things. We can first of all say clearly that God does not sin. We'll not take the time to reinforce that uh, so much from other verses, but God Himself does not sin. And I want you to see that James is telling us we cannot blame God for the existence of sin either. In fact, to blame God for sin would be to, to, to commit blasphemy against His holy nature and character. A couple of verses that would reinforce this point is Deuteronomy 32.4. Deuteronomy 32.4, where Moses said, speaking of God, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Did you get that? He is a God of justice without iniquity. Iniquity is one of the many words in our Bibles that 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 represents sin. He is just and right. Deuteronomy 32.4 His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is He. The somewhat friend of Job in Job chapter 34 verse 10, Elihu concluded, Far be it from God that He should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that He should do wrong. Job 34.10. You see, the source of sin is not God. And yet there is a mystery and a question about from where sin comes. Clearly, God 
in his sovereignty over the universe and in, and, and in his lordship over all creation, ordained that sin should and could exist. We'll dig a little deeper into this point next week. This is related to the age-old problem, where does evil come from? And that's not an easy question necessarily to answer. Our Bible gives us some points, and James here gives it at some level. You do need to understand that sin did not surprise God. And somehow sin is allowed to come about by the moral choices of created beings. Let me say that again. Sin did not surprise God. He ordained that it could be in existence. And somehow it is embedded in the possibility of moral choices of his created beings, not animals. This is one of the distinctives of angelic beings and humans is that at, at least angels at some point in time had an ability to choose to sin. Ask Jim Shupey whether he believes they can still choose to sin or not. I don't know if they're locked into their final decision. That's a good question. Shupey will answer it for you. But you have a, a puppy dog, and your puppy dog can chew up your favorite set of downhill skis and chew the tips right off of them. And you get so mad that you take what's left of your downhill skis and you beat the fire out of your dog. But your dog did not sin. Your dog just did what dogs do. He chewed on the tips of your skis and ruined them. He didn't sin. But somehow, look what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But, and this is all the explanation that James gives at this point, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Those are fishermen and, and, and trappers' words. That is the, that is the bucktail spinner coming through the weeds and the big largemouth bass says, Oh yeah, oh yeah. And he is what? He is lured. We even call them lures. It is attractive. It is something that is drawing me towards it. And it says enticed. That's the little row of breadcrumbs going to the trap. The other morning I came down for breakfast. And much to the mortification of Janet, I had to tell her when she came down, I said, you know, when I got the cereal out this morning, out of the corner of my eye, I am sure that I saw... A mouse. Well, we haven't had mice in our house for a number of years. And I hadn't had to set traps because we have those nice little kitty kitties. And so I went downstairs and I found some traps. And, I, and what did I do? Did I just leave the trap there and set it? No, I, I got some Velveeta cheese and I smeared it all over the thing. And it sat there for a day or two and nothing happened. And so I thought, I better enhance it. And so, and so I made it even more enticing. And I got Jif peanut butter. Who can resist Jif peanut butter? And I put Jif peanut butter all over the dried-on Velveeta cheese. And it wasn't long at all. And all of a sudden, smack! And the big old fat mama mouse was exactly in the condition for which they were created. We enticed it. 
But notice where this enticement comes. It doesn't say that it comes from Satan. We will be dealing with the subject of Satan in relationship to sin. Probably an entire message on that. But James could easily have added here, the devil makes you do it. But it doesn't say that. It says that from deep within, there is a capacity in the created beings of God who are able to make moral choices that because, as we'll see next week in our homardiology, that because of the innate sinful, sinfulness of mankind in Adam's sin, that we now have an ability out of the recesses of the depths of our own moral decision-making ability to always choose to sin. It's interesting, isn't it, that God made us creatures of choice. And if you stop and think about sin, sin is, almost, sin is always a distortion of some kind of a gift of God at, at some level. Regardless of what the sin, it, it, is, it is taking a desire that God gave and intended to be a good thing. And because of sin, it is now distorted and it is somehow embedded in us that we have the ability to be drawn away and lured and enticed, look what it says, by his own desire. For the sake of our message this morning, we need to understand that the seriousness of sin is such that it springs from within our own desires. You want to know why we have to study sin? Because every person in this room desires to sin. And it's hideous. And the fallout is disastrous. In fact, it's so serious, it says in James... Number one, that it comes from within. Number two, that it ends in death. Look what he says. Then desire, this desire that comes from within. It is a personal desire. You cannot say that the devil made you sin, and you cannot say that someone else makes you sin. It comes from a deep-seated desire within ourselves to take a distorted good part of what God made in us and turn it into evil. And it comes from within. Look what he says then. And then when it con has conceived, when it has done its work, when it has processed, and the imagination kicks in. And this is another great mystery. How by simply the attitudes of our heart and the hidden thoughts of our mind, we can be living in rank, filthy sinfulness. And we can be just looking like this. Wow. And it says, when it has taken root... It does what? It ends in death. That's a broad word. It represents a lot in Scripture, and we'll be digging into it future future messages. By his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, excuse me. But that sin ends in death. It brings forth death. We know from other passages of Scripture that we'll not turn to at this point, for example, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it comes from within, it ends in death, and it leads to wrath. That's what the sequence I wanted you to get out of James here. It comes from within, it ends in death, 
and it leads to God's wrath. We have extended passages of Scripture that explain the wrath of God outpouring in many different ways on the sinfulness of mankind. You need to know that it is one of the laws of the universe that sin always leads to death and sin always demands the judgment of God. You think this isn't serious? It's one of the most serious things we can talk about. Why is this a must series? Number one, the seriousness of sin. But number two, just turn to your right a couple more pages and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Just turn about two pages in your Bible and you'll be there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And the second reason that I want to suggest that that this is on my heart and that I think this is so important for our church is number two, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. I really believe that one of the great problems of the church around the world, and particularly in America, is that we have a low view of God. And that we have recreated God into our image, that we are not stunned, awed, by the holiness of God as a result of a, of a misguided perception of the holiness of God. We have no fear of God. And as a result of having no fear of God, we in the church have become very comfortable with sin. And so therefore, we need a renewed understanding of the holiness of God. I want you to see how serious this is, how essential it is. Look, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and there are many passages in Scripture we could look at. On this topic, each of these points today could be a message in themselves. Therefore, verse 13, 1 Peter, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, that means to think clearly, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. All right, now, just that line alone tells us that as born-again believers, with our intent and our drive to be a passion for the revealing of Christ and and the hope of glory in Christ, that we have to be told, even in our redeemed state on earth, we are born again if we know Christ, that we have to be warned that we are no longer to conform or go back to or to refit ourselves with the passions of our former ignorance. His point is that he will cut them some slack for the fact that before they were born again, before they came to the cross, before the scales fell off their eyes, before they understood the hatefulness of sin, before they were overwhelmed with the holiness of God, that they sinned because they were sinners, and that's that's what sinners do, and people do. Dogs bark, sinners sin. Fish swim. It doesn't mean they're not accountable for their sin, But it shouldn't surprise us. So when we watch the news and we read the newspaper and we see what's going on up the street or whatever, it shouldn't be like, oh, I can't believe they did that. Why can't you believe it? That's what sinners do. You think sin makes sense? Sin is unbelievably painful. It's it's like an arsenic cake or pie with a beautiful frosting on top. But when you finally get through the frosting, it's just unbelievable what sin does. And not only people will people do it, but people will, will convince themselves that they want to keep doing it. But believers in the Lord Christ are to say no to that 
And they're to turn away from the old ways. We are not to look like we used to look before we were saved. And look what we're supposed to do. Look what he says. As obedient children, verse 14 again, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is, what's the word? Holy. You also be holy in what? In all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That was given to God's people clear back in in Exodus, Deuteronomy. And if you call on him as Father who judges, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter's writing to people who are scattered away from home because of persecution. He's challenging them to live holy lives wherever they are and to not let down on their Christian conduct and Christ-likeness regardless of where they live. We could think of it as being in exile until we get to heaven. So as long as we're in exile on this earth, what? Live, conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of, con- of exile, knowing that you were ransom- ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Listen. I'm one of the first people to admit and concede that the Bible can be hard to understand in places. But I don't think that's that hard to understand. He says... Your job, my job, is to be holy because he's holy. God says, I'm holy, so you be holy. Stop acting like you're not holy. Conduct yourselves with fear while you're in exile on this earth and look forward to the day when we'll be together. You think sin isn't serious? You think this subject isn't relevant for today for the church? So now we have to know, what does it look like to live a holy life? Why is it that I like to sin so much if I'm born again? If I've been washed, as he said, not with perishable things, and I haven't been purchased with silver or gold, but, but look what he says. Look what God, look how God views the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. And with that, he has scrubbed me clean. And I can stand before him holy. What is it about me that I love to look at sin? And I love to participate in sin. And I love, to, I love to return to the old ways of sin. Serious. And all this not only affects our personal holiness, which is what Peter is talking about here, and our walk in sanctification and separation from sin, that we're holy, but notice that it is all based on the character of God and that He is holy. And you see, it's not until you see the holiness of God that you understand your own sinfulness. It's, you know, it's, it's convincing yourself that your teeth are white until you put a whitener up there. It's like, man, I got old yellow coffee teeth. They're not white at all, really. And when the holiness of God shines on us, it's Isaiah in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. Remember that passage? Isaiah 6, beginning with verse 1. And in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said. And his train filled the temple. And he goes on to describe this incredible creature with eyes and wings. 
these living beings that have been created because of the holiness of God being so great that there are creatures that are created that all they do 24 hours a day is cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy! And they try to look at Him, but they can't look at His holiness, so they have wings to cover up. Then they try to look again, and they cry out, Holy, Holy! And then their eyes burn, and they have to cover Him with their wings, because it's incredible. I don't know how it works, but it looks to me that's like how it is. And do you remember what Isaiah said? When I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I saw His train in the temple, and I saw these creatures crying out day and night, Holy, Holy, Holy! I saw that I was a man of filthy, unclean lips. And I saw that I was a sinful man. And I tell you, I don't think there's probably, I don't, I don't think there's anything the church needs more than a renewed vision of the holiness of God. And it is not until, it is not until we see God high and lifted up that revival will sweep through here and renewal will spring into the hearts of God's people who are bored with their Christianity and bored with their Bibles. This topic is so important because of the seriousness of sin. It springs from within. It leads to death. It demands wrath. This topic is so serious because of the holiness of God. And until we see the holiness of God, we will have a passive attitude towards sin. We will lose our awe of God and we will stop blushing at sin. Somewhat related to this is... And I want to make this point as a time of, and the timeliness and relevance of the age in which we live. The third reason that I want to present that has been on my heart, why I think this is such an important subject, is the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man. I can remember when my dad, when I was a kid in the 60s, and it was pretty crazy times, you have to admit. But, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that every generation does this. Every generation looks back on, the, looks back on their generation as somehow a more righteous and, and more, uh, more dignified and more moral generation of people. I think there's actually something to it. I think that you can track in some kind of a, some kind of a curve or maybe a plunge the increasing immorality of the world in which we live. And that sin is rampant. I mean, you have to admit that when I was a kid, for people, secular people, who would not say they were professing believers in Christ and who were driven by money or whatever, for them to argue that on a, on a black and white TV with a very poor picture that Elvis the pelvis should only be seen from the waist up compared to what we've seen and then talked about on all the news shows, like we need to know about it lately. Or whatever, you, there's, there's untold illustrations. You have to say, you know, um, I, I, I think that I can legitimately say that things are like dropping off when it comes to sin and the tolerance of sin in our culture. And that we are living in strange days. And we are living clearly in days when people, good people, them are good people, calling, they call evil good and good evil. And in fact, we ourselves in the church have become quite comfortable with buying some popcorn and paying some money for a ticket to go and entertain ourselves with sin and say, it was a great night. Verse 
I want to show you just a couple of passages that will challenge us. Because I believe very much that... I believe very much that, 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 that God's clock is picking up tempo. I believe that as the days go by, that night is coming. And, and, and I'm not so sure that Wayne McKenzie's wrong, that in his lifetime, the rapture of the church will occur. He's convinced about it. He gave me all of his deer rifles. He gave me his lawnmower. He's going to give me his Honda. He, he's so convinced of Oh, you didn't do that. You're not that convinced. He's pretty convinced, though. Will you turn with me to Matthew, Gospel, chapter 24, where we have the Olivet Discourse, and we have a sort of uh, the, the end time sermon that our Lord Jesus preached. It's not long before he heads to the cross. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, look what he says. He says, but concerning that day, Matthew 24, 36. People always want to know when the Lord's coming back. What's it going to be like? How's it going to be at the end times? And Jesus taught his disciples. He said, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. People always want to know, does Jesus know today when he's coming back? And I, just, I would say that he does. I think that at this point... Uh, in his earthly ministry, he, he would say he didn't know, I think. You can ask Shupi what he thinks about that, too. But the Father only, but the Father only, if Jesus and his Father are one and the three and one and, and he's omniscient, I think he has to know. For as were the days of Noah, look at this now, here's our clue, here's our clue. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, what was it like right before the flood came? For 120 years, as Noah built the ark and he was a preacher of righteousness and he taught righteousness, self-control and coming judgment and nobody paid attention to him. Let's turn quickly to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And if you don't want to turn there, just listen, because I'm just going to read them, and that's all we're going to do. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. Here's what it was like. Okay? We already know from Jesus' words that at the time before the flood came... That nobody gave a rip about anything, and they just lived their lives like nothing was going to change, and they were absolute humanists and naturalists. That is, if they could see it, they believed it. If they felt it, they did it. All right? They didn't care about God. Notice how God describes what he saw right before the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually. There's then, an, there's then an anthropomorphism that is describing God as though he were a man. And it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So that we can understand how serious this was in the mind of God. He gives, it's as though God had human emotions as they looked at it. Let me ask you a question. Can our world today at large be described in any other way than chapter 6, verse 5? 
The wickedness of man is so great on the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is evil continually. Do we live in a time when mankind is at large more arrogant and proud and self-righteous and self-destructive? I don't even need to illustrate this to you. You can't, you can't sit down and make up the stuff that's going on. And it's everywhere all the time in Ohio and Montana and West Virginia and in this room. I'm going to tell you, another reason that this topic is so important is the general wickedness of mankind. And so I, I, can, I, can, I can hardly think of a more appropriate topic that is more relevant for today. So, you have to be sure and tell your friends that you have a very cool, relevant pastor who is speaking on cutting-edge subjects. And when they say, what is it? You say, sin. Watch them go, ooh. <laughs> you cannot be more relevant than this topic. It's everywhere. It's destroying our families. It's destroying our children. It's ruining homes, businesses, and schools. Communities are going bankrupt. Entire governments are crumbling because of sin. There's one final and concluding point that I want to make in our last minutes. This topic is so important because of the very seriousness of sin. It comes from within. It ends in death. It demands wrath. Serious. It's also important because of the holiness of God. It's very relevant because of the wickedness of our day. But I want you to turn to Titus real quickly in your New Testament. And I want you to look quickly and I want you to see that this topic is really relevant because of the kindness of our God. The kindness of our God. Where the study of sin leads us is to the need for a Savior from our sin. And this also is incredibly relevant to us. And it is the reality of the demand of a need for a Savior that has been provided out of the kindness of a loving Heavenly Father. Titus chapter 3, look at verses 4 through 8. Titus 3, 4 through 8. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. All right, from what did he save us? Will you say the word with me? Sin. Sin. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, look at the, look at the expression that Paul used in writing Titus, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified, that's declared righteous and established in the, in the files of heaven without a record of sinfulness anywhere that anybody could ever cough up on us. And we only have the righteousness of Christ now. We've been justified by His grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable 
for all people. Did you see what verse 4 said? That the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared so that what? Let your eyes go over to verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You see, the kindness of God in our salvation is to drive us to good works. And the outworking of our salvation, he says, look what he says in 2, 11 and 12. For the, grace of God has, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for that blessed and glorious hope of his appearing. Here's my point. Out of the very kindness of God, we have been allowed to come to the cross and lay down our burden of sin and receive the undeserved righteousness of Christ. It doesn't stop there. That same grace that saves us works in us so that because we are saved, not so that we are saved, but because we are saved, we then are driven to a righteous life. Then we must study the topic of sin so we know how to live a righteous life. Oh, it'll be a careful study of sin. We'll not be putting examples up on the board very much. We do have one, don't we? We'll not cause you to sin by our own illustrations of sin. But we're all sin experts, aren't we? Well, there you have it. The importance of Fellowship Bible Church studying the topic of sin this fall. It springs out of the very seriousness of sin the holiness of God, the wickedness of man, and the kindness of our Heavenly Father. I trust that you'll be faithful in reading your Bibles. I trust that you will come with prepared hearts. I trust that you will come in anticipation that God is going to do a work in our church this fall. I trust that you will join me in trying to renew our hearts in a new perspective on the holiness of God so that we see sin for what it really is. Let's bow in prayer. I always want to make sure, before I pray, let me just say something. I I always want to make sure that I call sinners to repentance. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus and the kindness of God, Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, my friend. And if if you are uh, sensing guilt... And you recognize that God cannot look at you as his child today. Why don't you ask him for forgiveness in Christ? Why don't you become a new creation in Christ by faith alone, by his grace alone, just in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Acknowledge your sinfulness to God and ask him for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The Bible says to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can do that right now as I conclude in prayer. So, Father, awaken us, stir us, challenge us. We recognize how how callous we've become. We've, We've lost in awe of your holiness. And as a result, we don't even blush at our sinfulness anymore. Would you please forgive us? Would you please awaken us? Would you send renewal and revival in my life, in the life of our congregation, Would you take your word and just 
Use it to, to, to challenge us and to grow us and to teach us. And then give us a willingness to walk with Jesus. To have one pure and holy passion. <clears throat> to follow hard after Jesus. And to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Accomplish your purposes, I pray in us, Lord, through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.